Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Uh, this is Perry Marshall, and I'm here with David Quammen, and uh, he is author of a wonderful new book called The Tangled Tree, a radically new history of life, and um, He's been a science writer for quite a long time. He, uh, David, do I understand correctly, you wrote an entire issue of National Geographic? I did. I wrote the May issue of National Geographic uh, on the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem. It was, uh, it was an, in observance of the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service, and they asked me to write the entire text for the, for the issue. Um, that was a, a very interesting privilege and responsibility. Well, not bad. National Geographic is a very competitive uh, little ecosystem in in its own right. So, yeah. So, um, well, that's great. And and I I became aware of your work uh, through uh, I had I had two of my clients actually send me links to your articles. Uh, one of them uh, one of them took a picture, and the other one sent me. And so it was the New York Times. You you wrote a whole little excerpt of your book in the New York times. And then then another guy um, wrote a piece in the wall street journal. And I thought, well, all right, so what's going on here? And um, well, uh, you know, there's been a, a quiet revolution in evolutionary biology going on, which I would say only in the last couple of years really is starting to hit the public awareness. It's been going on already for a long time. Yes. Well, maybe um, several different revolutions. Yeah. So in, in fact, I don't even want to put any more words to it. I, I'd like, like, let's hear, you know, you obviously figured out something was up yeah. and, and you, you, you took a very interesting angle to this, which we will explore. So, but wh- why don't you give me like, how would you describe the, yeah. the revolutions? Right. Here's the revolution that I know about. Uh, Back in 2013, when I was sort of browsing for my next book project, I read something about the phenomenon called horizontal gene transfer. Horizontal gene transfer. Genes moving sideways across species boundaries. Supposed to be impossible. Even across broader boundaries, bigger gaps. Genes moving from one kingdom of life to another. And my first reaction was, wait, no, huh? That's impossible. Uh, Genes don't cross. I mean, when two closely related species hybridize, there might be some exchange of genes between two closely related species. Maybe they're only subspecies. But this was not that. This was something much more drastic. The idea that genes could move from one unrelated kind of creature into another sideways, horizontally, as opposed to vertically from parent to offspring, which is the the classic way we think of genes passing down through time. Horizontal gene transfer. So I started reading more about it, uh, came across some scientific articles by a fellow named Ford Doolittle, uh, a microbiologist in Halifax, Nova Scotia, an American, but he spent his career in Nova Scotia. And he wrote a piece in the journal Science in 1999 about this, that gathered together, it was a review article, and it made this subject sort of conspicuous within the scientific community. But I didn't, I have written, you know, previous books about Darwin and about evolution. I'd never heard of this stuff. And I read a little farther and I came across this character, Carl Woese, who was the fellow who triggered this revolution back in 1977. Um, A professor of microbiology, a little white haired guy in Urbana, Illinois, at the University of Illinois. And, um, and he began this, this particular revolution that does not overturn uh, 20th century Darwinian theory, but adds important elements to it, including the fact that we now know that incremental mutation is not the only source of innovation 
in a lineage upon which natural selection can work. We now know that there can be these big lumps of new genetic material that might come into a lineage, and, and I can talk about some of the specifics of that, um, but that, that can bring uh, entire genes, entire clusters of genes, long stretches of DNA into a genome of a particular lineage, and then give um, some drastically new material, a major innovation, upon which natural selection can then act. Uh, so that's, well, that's the short version of this revolution that began with Carl Woese. And this completely changes the speed of evolution too. It can, in some cases, yeah. I mean, evolution right. can still be slow, but it can also be fast. For instance, antibiotic resistance among bacteria, and I talk about that in the book. You know, a single strain of bacteria might slowly evolve resistance to one antibiotic, say penicillin, say, you know, um, Staphylococcus evolves resistance to penicillin. But now we know that that gene for resistance to penicillin can pass instantaneously, not just from one Staphylococcus aureus bug into another, but from Staphylococcus into Salmonella, from Salmonella into E. coli. So that's fast evolution. Well, and so, so that that has reverberating consequences on the whole entire picture because, well, you know, there was the, these classical arguments uh, with Gould and different people about whether it was gradual or whether there were leaps, right? right? And, and punctuate, punctuate equilibrium and, yes. and yes. all that. And, and so, so now we're, we're changing the speed of evolution. We're changing, totally changing the shape of the tree, which is what your book is about. Um, and, um, and, and we're also, um, maybe you can get to this later where there's also all kinds of clue, little tiny clues in the, in the molecules as to the history. Yes. So, yes. Uh, That's why this field, I mean, what I've written is a, is a history of a field and its consequences and our understanding of who we are, how we got here and what the shape of the history of life is. Um, I don't like to say it too often because it makes people's eyes glaze over, but this field is called molecular phylogenetics. <laughs> <laughs> right. Molecular history of yeah. body so, when you, you know, And I've, I've been telling people, when you go, if, you, if you're going to write a book, when you go to make a pitch to your editor over lunch at a nice New York restaurant, when you tell him what your next book is going to be, do not tell him this is going to be a history of molecular phylogenetics. Do not say that. Maybe you want to say this is a book about the most important biologist of the 20th century that you've never heard of. Well, you know, um, I, I really, I'm sure some people are probably bothered by the fact that you've basically written a biography of Carl Woese, you know, that you've kind of wrapped this uh, that way. I think it's great. Um, well, people like to read about people. So when you write about science, in my view, you can't just explain science. You want to tell stories about the people who do science, the men and women like Carl Woese and Lynn Margulis and Barbara McClintock and Ford Doolittle who do the science and tell their stories to some extent. And then I try and weave them together into a, um, into a, a, a tapestry that um, is fun to read as well as illuminating. Well, I, I think his story really needs to be told. Now, I, I was familiar with him and his work for, for quite a while. I didn't know anywhere near what I learned reading your book. But, but really, he, he was a very important person. So why don't you uh, kind of tell the story of, um, so first off, he, he doesn't come from the usual sources of biologists for one thing and he, he finds his way into this profession and then he starts turning things upside down so what happened yeah. okay so he's this guy uh he goes to college at amherst um he does a degree at yale a doctorate in biophysics biophysics at yale and then he goes to work for the general electric company in schenectady in the general electric research labs and he starts groping around and he has no idea what general electric wants from him but he knows that he's interested in the, in the deep history of life, deep questions. How did complex cells like the cells that make up our bodies and all animals, plants, and fungi 
fancy term, eukaryotic cells, meaning they have a cell nucleus and they have a fancy internal structure. How did those cells come to be? How did, uh, how did, how did life begin? How did bacterial cells or whatever else was the first form of cellular life lead to these other things? So he's interested in those questions. He, goes to, he gets hired by the University of Illinois. Uh, he writes a book about the origins of the genetic code. Watson and Crick have just solved the structure of the DNA molecule, and they know that DNA codes for the arrangement of amino acids in proteins, um, like beads on a string. And the genetic code is a question of which letters in the DNA alphabet code for which amino acids. And people wanted to understand that. That was a puzzle that people were trying to solve. Francis Crick was trying to solve that, others. Woes comes along and says, I don't wanna just solve that puzzle. I wanna understand how the genetic code evolved. He always wanted to go a level deeper than other people. So he starts work and, um, and he wants to know about the deep history of life. Um, he starts using a very clumsy, simple, primitive method of genome sequencing to get fragments of certain um, genomic molecules in, in microbes. Uh, and he's using toxic chemicals and explosive chemicals and high voltage and radioactive phosphorus. He's got this mess and he's got these, these wonderful assistants, men and women who are helping him do this in his lab. And this is in the mid seventies and nobody has fancy machines for sequencing genomes in the mid seventies. You got to do it by hand. You know, this is hammer and nail sequencing. And, and so he gets fragments. He picks one molecule, one important, I call it his Rosetta stone molecule that's in the structure of all creatures, living creatures, bacteria, um, you know, us, animals, plants, everything. One molecule that is basic to all forms of life. And he says, I'm going to sequence what I can of that molecule, fragments at least. And then I'm going to take those fragments and put them into paragraphs. And then I'm going to compare the paragraphs from different organisms. And he does that. And he discovers an entirely new kingdom of life, an entirely new form of life that nobody knew it existed creatures that look like bacteria through a microscope, but if you look at their genome, you look at this, the sequence of this particular molecule, they are more different from bacteria than they are from us, from complex creatures. And that group of organisms eventually become known as the archaea, because the archaea is an old archaeology, etc., um, because they thought they, people thought maybe this is the oldest form of life. So that's Woes makes the front page of the New York Times, November 3rd, 1977. There he is sitting with his feet up on his desk, wearing a pair of Adidas and a sports shirt. And here's this guy that nobody's ever heard of, Carl Woes, and suddenly he's the most famous, for 15 minutes, like Andy Warhol said, he's the most famous scientist in America. And then he disappears back into his lab and goes to work, uh, follows up um, that discovery with, with other discoveries in terms of the shape of the tree of life. So that's the that's short history of, of of, of Carl Woese, at least to the point when he uh, became very influential with other scientists. Are archaea familiar to regular people in any, like, is there any germ or infection or anything like that? that or, or is this just uh, something that only biologists uh, have they are, any? They are very little of... known to the general public um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, none of them cause infections in humans as far as hmm. we know yeah so they're medically they're not a problem they're insignificant medically you don't hear about them you know you never go to a doctor and he says oh you got an archaea infection <laughs> doesn't happen okay so yeah. that's good <laughs> um but also at least at the beginning these were all creatures that lived in extreme environments they lived in high temperatures they lived in hot springs in yellowstone park um, they lived in acidic environments. They lived near thermal vents at the bottom of the ocean. Um, they lived in oxygen-poor environments uh, where they, um, they metabolized carbon dioxide and produced methane. Um, they lived in extremely salty environments. So they were all these crazy extreme creatures that looked like bacteria but lived in places where bacteria generally couldn't live. And then we just woes discovered that they weren't bacteria after all. Now we know they live in other places too, but that was the beginning. And that's part of why people are unaware of them. Now, this also brought this whole uh, concept of horizontal gene transfer. So you, can you explain what this actually is, uh, first of all? Okay, it is movement 
of DNA from one species into another. Uh, and sometimes that means it might be from back from across kingdom boundaries, across huge boundaries. It might be DNA from bacteria going into an insect. Mm. And that's supposed to be impossible. But it turns out it's, it's supposed not supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. So the next question is, and if I can ask it of myself before you ask it, how? How does this happen? Mm-hmm. And the short answer to that, it's, there are complicated answers, but the short, simple answer to that is infection. The great mm. Joshua Lederberg, a microbiologist in the 1950s, Nobel Prize winner, uh, gave, a, uh, gave a name to this, coined the phrase infective heredity. Horizontal gene transfers, infective heredity. He saw it in the 1950s among bacteria, from one kind of bacterium to another. But then in the 19, well, when when Woese's methodology took hold, and then genome sequencing become became much faster, better, and cheaper, people started finding this um, not just among bacteria, but um, among animals, plants, fungi, other kinds of creatures. Genes moving by infectious and in that infection and generally that means a bacterium gets into a creature gets into its reproductive cells gets into the the ovaries the testes the eggs and the sperm and infects those cells the interior of those cells uh, intracellular parasitism within the cells and then its dna gets into the dna of that particular reproductive cell say in an animal or a virus infects somebody and viruses can do this too by essentially what I simplified by calling it a drag and drop sort of mechanism. (laughs) Virus virus can infect one creature and it can pick up some of that creature's DNA in its own viral genome. And then uh, the descendants, the replicants of that particular viral particle can infect some other kind of creature and it can drop that DNA inside the cells of that creature. So there are there are a couple of there are three different mechanisms for this with fancy names, but the the simple explanation is infection can carry genes sideways. And isn't it true? It's not always just infection. Sometimes it's also receptivity. At times, cells well, are yeah. receptive to. That's right, because sometimes what's brought in turns out to be turns out to be helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's again, you know, the way evolution works. There are changes, there are innovations that natural selection works on, and and usually, if you if you change a genome either in a small way or a large way, you screw things up. You've thrown a monkey wrench into the works, and that lineage dies out. It's it's killed off by natural selection. But sometimes the innovation turns out to be good. It's a it's serendipity. It's a happy accident, and um, and that that alien DNA that's come in is sometimes modified and repurposed. And I can tell you one really bizarre head spinning case of this. So that it becomes advantageous. Okay. So 8% of the human genome is viral DNA. We know that now from genome sequencing. 8% of our genomes um, is DNA that has come down not by vertical linear descent through the entire animal lineage, but has come in sideways by infection over the last long period of time, 100 million years, different um, events of infection. Uh, How can that get into our genome? Well, these are retroviruses, retro backwards. Retroviruses move backwards. They can put their DNA into the genome of a cell that they infect. Viruses, you know, are not cells. We're saying that for people. Viruses are something else, but they infect cells. They get inside cells, and they use cell machinery to replicate themselves, and then the cell busts open, and there are more viral particles, and you get sick. With a retrovirus, like HIV, it inserts itself into the cell. It goes into the cell nucleus. It patches its own DNA recipe, its its, uh, blueprint, into the the genome of the cell, and then when that cell replicates itself, it replicates the virus, and eventually um, all those cells bust open, and you've got a bloodstream full of HIV. Not good. We call that AIDS. But if it's a retrovirus, instead of infecting your immune cells, it infects your reproductive cells. It gets into the eggs, the sperm, the ovaries, or the testes. It patches itself into the, into the genome. It becomes heritable. It gets passed down. Whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, it gets passed down. And that's how we've accumulated 8% of our genomes 
through um, through viral retrovirus captured retroviruses. Now, some of those uh, are um, are dysfunctional. It's just DNA that's there. What scientists used to call junk DNA, thinking that it didn't do anything. They don't say that anymore because they, they realize it's much more complicated than that. It's just you know DNA that might or might not have a function, but we don't know the function. But one of these viral genes that's coming into the human genome, um, uh, which is called, it's got a fancy name, Syncytin 2, Syncytin 2, S-Y-N-C-Y-T-I-N, discovered by a guy named Thierry Heidemann in Paris and his group, it discovered to be a useful gene. It's come from a, from a virus. It's gotten into the human genome. Originally, it formed sort of an envelope membrane around virus particles, and now it forms a different kind of membrane in humans. It forms a membrane between the placenta and the fetus in a pregnant woman, and that membrane mediates between the placenta and the fetus in a completely crucial way, uh, bringing nutrients into the fetus, carrying waste products out of the fetus, possibly also defending the fetus from the mother's immune system because the fetus has a genome that's only 50% the same as the mother's. Mm -hmm. This membrane, which is completely necessary for successful pregnancy in humans, comes from a viral gene that was captured sideways sometime in the course of mammalian evolution. So in your book, Tangled Tree, there was a little detail about that that I just thought was really fascinating. I had never picked up anywhere else. And it was that um, diff that mammal, uh, not just mammals, but maybe creatures similar to mammals, like, uh, like kangaroos are, I think are related to mammals, but they're not exactly right. Kangaroos are mammals, but they're not placental mammals. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but there were, there were multiple places in the, in the family of higher animals that had co-opted different versions of a virus to make a placenta. So like, okay, now I thought, oh my goodness. Um, well, th that would be an example of convergence. Um, I don't know if you can talk about that, but, but, but that this had been engineered four different times, four different ways. Yes. Yes, that's right. That's it. That's what Thierry Heidemann's work has shown, and that's what I say, describe in the book, that this Sensitin 2, it's not the only gene that does this. There have been a series of versions. Some of them are still in our genome. Um, for instance, when the first animal that was laying eggs, you know, a reptile or a bird, started evolving into a mammal with internal pregnancy, um, how did it do that? Well, it had to have it had to have some way of starting to form a placenta and intermediate between the placenta and the fetus. And one of these genes was probably captured from a retrovirus at that point, and it was put to this use. But then you know, maybe 10 million years later, another individual pre-mammal got infected with another virus that entered the genome, and it was an improved version, and it was adapted. So this has happened um, a series of times, and it can be seen in the in the mammal genome. Different mammals have different versions of this gene. Um, all mammals have to have some version of this gene, so it had to come in in a primitive form originally once. But since then, it has been improved upon, and it's been improved upon not just by sort of mutation and slow evolution of the gene, but by capturing of more viral envelope genes and putting them to use in improved ways. That, that, that was amazing to me. I flew to Paris to see this guy, Terry Heider. I, yeah. I emailed him when I started reading his book, or started reading his papers, and I said, whoa, what, what, this is amazing. I emailed him, very nice man. I said, if I come from Bozeman, Montana to Paris, will you talk to me for one hour about your book? <laughs> and he said, yes, of course, I, sure I will, I sure I will. So I flew to Paris, you know, I'm not rolling in money, but I knew this was going to be worth it. I flew to Paris. Um, he's such a nice man. He says, oh, you're staying at such and such hotel that's near my apartment. I'll pick you up. We'll drive across the city of Paris, 45 minutes, the world's most elegant scenic commute um, to my institute. So we did that. We drove across the city and we kept talking. We, I talked to him for seven hours that day about this work, and it was worth it. Um, and then the next day I got on a plane and came back to Montana. 
Wow. That's fantastic. Well, so um, the, the Wall Street Journal guy was a little grumpy and he was like, hold on, everybody. Let's just remember that that natural selection and Darwinian evolution is still in place. Like, you know, but yeah. like he, he seemed kind of rattled. Now, I think I completely understand why he's rattled, but why, why does, why does this, why, why is this a revolution? And why do you have to start thinking differently about biology? And why do people feel threatened by this? Okay. Well, first of all, I'll answer that. First of all, I want to say that that reviewer is um, uh, an evolutionary biologist and writer named David Barish. Um, I've known of his work for a long time. I don't like to complain about reviewers. Everybody has their point of view. I reviewed too. So he, there were things that he didn't quite like, and that's fine. He's in, he's yeah. in touch with that. That's, that's great. Thanks for the attention to the book. Uh, <laughs> right. Secondly, all publicity is good publicity, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Secondly, um, how is this a revolution? Well, this people are, people are very defensive of Darwin. Darwin was a great, great scientist. I've written a, biography of Darwin. I love Darwin. Um, But Darwin published The Origin of Species in 1859, knew nothing about genetics, very little about microbiology. Um, He did amazing work, and he has remained right uh, on most things um, for 150 years. But Darwin was the Isaac Newton of evolution, and then comes the Einstein of evolution, who modifies um, Newton without falsifying oh, wow. Newton, and that's the that's the analogy I use. And mm. I, I think uh, Carl Woese and the work that followed him—that's the Einsteinian revolution in understanding better what Darwin so foresightfully sketched out. And the the modifications are, and, and we just talked we talked about some of this at the beginning. The biggest modification is in terms of um, the pace and the origin of variation, of innovation in genomes. Natural selection, I believe that natural selection, even Darwin didn't believe it was the only mechanism. There's also genetic drift, which is sort of a random process. Uh, It happens among small populations on islands in particular. Um, We could talk about that if you want. But um, the real real headline news of this second half of the 20th century revision of orthodox darwinism is about the pace and the origin of the innovations that get into mm-hmm. the gene upon which natural selection works and the biggest of those changes is the awareness that horizontal gene transfer can be bringing whole chunks of of new genes and, and fragments of genes into a genome and then natural selection has to sort that out well, when when Einstein came out with his theories and quantum mechanics and everything, there was a whole cadre of people. They didn't like it. They yeah. didn't want it. Right. Like, don't bring that around here. This is all going to be proven wrong. I I believe there was there was some some kind of book that came out in the nineteen I don't know nineteen twenties or something called Fifty Scientists Against Einstein or something like that. It was like. Yeah. You know, we have all signed our name, and this is wrong, and we are yeah. going to squash this heresy. Yeah. You know, so, um, but it, like, well, it, it shows you that, that evolution isn't just random and accidental. It's not just gradual. It means there's immensely complex things going on that we barely understand, and some people kind of like to tell everybody that we have it all figured out and, like, not even close. Yeah. So no. that's one of the things that makes evolutionary biology such a such an exciting field is that we're still figuring things out, still figuring important things out. Well, I also I think that you could you could make um, a very compelling case uh, for making Carl Woese um, the central modern figure in evolution. You could also make a case around Lynn Margulis. You could also make a case around Barbara McClintock. I, I thought it was very interesting, your, your story of 2012 like or 13, like, hey, how come I haven't heard anything about that? I had a, I had a very similar moment 
in 2006 when I discovered Barbara McClintock. And I had been reading evolution stuff for a good two years, mm-hmm. maybe more. I'm like, I've never heard about this. Yeah. And what just what the she discovered that a plant, if she hacked a, a plant's genome, that plant would act, actively restructure its genome in real time, repair the damage, and make an evolutionary change right there on the spot. Mm-hmm. No which completely conceptually changes the landscape of evolution all by itself. Yeah. Not to mention what Woes came up with, not to mention what Margulis, I didn't even find out about Margulis till a couple of years later. And so it was like, there was the standard textbook version of evolution that was shamefully out of date. I mean, yeah. Yeah. it's not like, it's not like this happened yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I don't know. Uh, I mean, I talk about Barbara McClintock in this book. Um, I don't know the particulars of the particular experiment you're talking about, but she um, she was important to this particular narrative connection of ideas because she discovered in corn, which is the, the plant that she worked on, maize, corn, um, she discovered these things that we now call transposons, jumping genes, that genes were mm-hmm. jumping around within the um, the genome of corn um, from one spot on one chromosome to another spot, jumping around. And she called them control elements, but later they became known as, um, uh, as transposons. And that's what she won the Nobel Prize for in, you know, like 40 years after she did the work in 1981 or something like that. Uh, right. And then other people, and I, I, I go, this is why McClintock is in my book, Um, Other people discovered that these transposons didn't just jump around within the genome of one creature, but they could jump from creature to creature, species to species, again, by infective heredity. There's a fellow named Cedric Fischot. Now he's at Cornell University, who's done some really interesting work on this, he and his group. Uh, And I went and interviewed him, and he's a character in the book, too, Uh, these, these transposons jumping from one um, species into another. You know, I was thinking about, uh, I can't remember if it was talking earlier with you or somebody else about the classic story of the peppered moth in England. You know that story? That wasn't me. Oh, okay. I, know, I know the story, but I, I don't know that my listeners necessarily know that story. Should we go there? Yeah, sure. Okay, so there's this moth, this white moth with little dark flecks on it. Uh, that's living in England in the 19th century. It's been there forever. It's white with little flecks. And then the Industrial Revolution happens, and this moth is used to roosting on the side of tree trunks um, that are white, like a birch tree. Um, But then um, smoke from the the mills of Manchester turn all the tree trunks black, and suddenly these, these moths are vulnerable to birds that can come and see the white moth in the black trunk. So within a fairly short period of time, the moths turn black. They, they evolve into a, a melanistic, a black form, and now they have uh, protective coloration again. It's one of the classic stories of classic Darwinian evolutionary theory. And people have gone back and looked at the research, looked at this particular moth, and there, have been, and there was one point when they thought that, well, this story just didn't hold up. And now the latest thinking is that it does hold up. But what they found recently, I just read this in a book um, that I'm reviewing for um, the New York Review of Books. Um, uh, I found mention of a, a study that shows that that change from the white version of the moth to the black version didn't happen by incremental mutation, little by little by little by little over the course of 20 or 30 years and, you know, um, 40 or 60 generations. It happened like that because a transposon, 22,000 DNA letters long, got into the genome of that peppered moth and changed it instantly from white to black. A transposon, horizontal gene transfer. I don't, I did not know that story. Now, now, now speaking, speaking as an engineer and being pretty familiar with McClintock's work, mm-hmm. um, my interpretation of that is that um, the physiology of the moth got a piece of genetic material and in some sense knew what to do with it. Um, we, we know that uh, when, when, uh, when germs are under stress, they'll start, 
they'll hyper mutate. Like they'll, they'll take certain parts of their genomes and they'll start like, mm-hmm. well, let's try this. Let's try this. Let's try this. And they'll, um, or, uh, uh, threatened by antibiotic, it'll go looking for genomes that it's like, Hey, right. uh, what well, do you them, got? What do you got? Yeah. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. One of the first mutations sometimes in, in a, a major evolutionary change is a mutation that increases the mutation rate of that genome, just makes it worse at copying itself precisely. And that mutation can lead in, you know, in two, two, um, you know, in myriad directions, but in two extreme directions, one is toward good and one is toward bad. If suddenly, you know, you have a higher mutation rate, you can, you copy your genome and it keeps getting different and it keeps getting screwed up. Or you have a higher mutation rate because you're under stress, you're in an emergency situation and you need something new, you need a new tool. So mutation, 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 bingo, suddenly a new tool appears. Now you may disagree with me on this, but I would say that that appears randomly because you've got a high mutation rate and then natural selection seizes it. Well, my, as best I can tell, the, 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 muta- the high mutation rates happen in hot spots and so, like, here, here's an example that I'm somewhat familiar with is, is you'll have hypermutation of one in, in like, um, there's, a, there's a mechanism called VDJ re- recombination, which is an immune system thing. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the cell will hold most of the genome constant while rotating values in a very certain small part. It's sort of like, it's like, well, I, 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 want a, I want a door and I need a doorknob, but is it a white door? Is it an orange yeah. door? Is it a blue door? Is it a yellow door? And it's, it's, it's a permutation. Or, or I need something at the end of my leg and I've tried a wheel and I've tried um, a flipper. They don't work in my environment. I need a foot. Yes. And, and I would just, my personal perspective from, from all my research is that is that the the exact predictive nature of such mutations is very poorly understood. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of room for research there. Yeah, and I, yeah. I would I would hypothesize I would no that's not strong enough of a word. I I would I would insist that to simply say that it's random. Um, slows the process of finding the systematic mechanisms that are underneath that and uh, okay i think yeah so to say i mean they talk about the the null hypothesis and so which is essentially the default hypothesis and you're saying to say that the default hypothesis is randomness will not lead you as quickly to new insights as to open yourself to the possibility that it's not random yes well i think that's a position I, i i don't have a quarrel with that at all do you know do you know richard lensky's work and his experiment yes i do I was looking at that again today. That's, should we talk about that at all? That seems to be really um, Yeah, I, I met him at a TED conference in 2010, and we talked about this. So go right ahead and um, may, well, me, may have a little I'll, serendipity here. I'll sketch, this, I'll sketch the experiment, and then you tell me what he said to you. Uh, I've mm-hmm. met him a few times, but I've, I've never really gotten into this with him. Um, so here's a guy, a microbi- an evolutionary microbiologist at Montana. Michigan State University, Richard Lenski. He's probably about 63 years old now. Um, and 30 years ago, he decided to, ha- to conduct what he calls a long-term evolutionary experiment, LTEE, long-term evolutionary experiment. So he took 12 different uh, populations, uniform, genetically uniform populations of E. coli, the bacterium, the common gut bacterium, and he separated them and he started them giving them nutrients and keeping them separate and let them evolve. And, he's, and then uh, I think each day he would take part, a sample from each of those and put it into another dish or another test tube um, so that he was tracking how they changed just this in this environment of of glucose and citrate and some other chemicals. And it's been going on for 30 years. He's got more than 65,000 generations of evolution in the, from these 12 original bacterial strains. And he's been, he, he's been doing this and he's been sequencing genomes to see how do they change? What's the rate of, 
um, mutation and what are the results of mutation and how is natural selection working um, in these things. And, he, and he's found some very interesting results. For instance, one of his strains evolved the ability to, uh, to live on citrate instead of on glucose. It, uh, it, it generated an entirely new gene. It was like, you know, if, if humans um, developed a gene where we could, like termites, we could live on, on cellulose, we could live on by chewing trees. That's what these microbes did. Um, so that's what that's part of what I know about landscaper. What did what did you and Richard talk about? Well, so so I, I'm familiar. So it's yeah, sixty thousand generations of bacteria and, and 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 what happens here. Well, so I've never I've never talked about this in public, but but I I uh, great do it now. I so we're we're talking about it now. So so um, I read one of his papers and he. He said, um, he said that this mutation that made citrate, so it could digest citrate and it couldn't before, uh, it had, had happened two or three times separately. And he said in his paper that it happened randomly. And I, I said to him, I said, I said, the data from your own paper does not support the idea that this happened randomly. I said, the statistical chances of that same thing happening three times and a million base pairs is way too small. I'm an engineer. I know probabilities. I said that was some kind of um, systematic mechanism that that was going on. And um, and and I, I said I actually have a question. I I said I, I was digging around in some old journals and I found this debate between you and James Shapiro in the '90s, and you were saying that evolutionary mutations are random and Shapiro was saying, no, it's natural genetic engineering. It's the kind of stuff that McClintock and Margulis uh, were, were coming up with. And I said, I said, Richard, um, <clears throat> um, what, it, what would be your perspective on that debate that you were having 20 years ago with Shapiro? Uh, Shapiro is a geneticist at the university of Chicago and, and he was a protege of, of Barbara McClintock. And he said, he said, um, Shapiro's, uh, I'm not quoting him exactly, but sort of like um, Shapiro turned out to be correct. Um, and, 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 and I said to him, I said, I think that there are predictive mechanisms in the mutation machinery that are looking for things that will work. Mm -hmm. uh, I said, we don't know how predictive they are. That's a complete mystery at this point. But, but I would go looking for a predictive mechanism where, in some sense, the bacterium knows um, that it's trying to accomplish something. Now, I, I, I have a couple comments about his, his experiment. I think his experiment is inherently incapable of producing large evolutionary changes because it, well, several... It, Th think about it. There's, there's no opportunity for massive viral infections. There's no opportunity for massive horizontal gene transfer events from wildly different organisms. That's right. Yeah. Um, there's no opportunity for symbiotic mergers either. Okay. So and Margulis pointed to as a hugely important factor. Right. And so he's, he's got these isolated strains of bacteria and, they're just so here would be my prediction. They could run that thing for for 200 years. And what they'll basically get is dogs will always breed as dogs. If you want something radically different, you have to do something. So Quan Zhang at the University of Tennessee, he's a, he's a friend of mine. He's a friend of mine because I hunted him down kind of like theory in in France. Like I was like, how come? How come this guy didn't get a Nobel Prize? Like, and I, I, well, well, here's what here's what Quan Zhang did. He put amoeba, amoeba proteus and X bacteria together, and basically they fought like cats and dogs. Okay, but at the end of eighteen months, he actually got an a symbiotic merger where the bacteria and the amoeba the, had gone inside the amoeba. Both of them had shed DNA that they didn't need, and they had consolidated functions like a corporate acquisition. 
you know, where we don't need two accounting departments and we don't need two HR departments. Okay. And they, they oh, had to read this paper. I'm going to make a note about it. I, um, maybe after we talk, I'll send it to you. Um, okay. I, I had to, I had to dig hard to find this thing. That's so very, I'll, I'll, very interesting because that's like I'll, an experimental replication of the, the, the historical endosymbiosis events that Lynn Margulis wrote about all her career. Right. Yes. Yes. Recreation of that. Well, that's, that's, yes. pretty, that's pretty interesting. And, and, and so, so, so by the time it was done, if he separated them, they would both die. And, and that's, it, that's inherent to the proper definition of a symbiotic merger, which is they have become so interdependent. Probably. That's like, well, like you take them apart, like there's no accounting department and this one has no HR department and like, right? That's what they call them obligate symbionts because they're obligated to have each other. Otherwise they die. Yeah, that's and, very interesting. Um, and, 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 and the conflict, the conflict in like, that, like, the, like most of them died and like, it was kind of, it was kind of ugly. Um, you know, I'm in, going on. I'm in, I'm in business strategy. I can tell you that most corporate acquisitions don't work out either. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, we, we've all heard stories about Daimler Chrysler. Like, yeah, that was a good idea. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Ted, Ted Turner is still shaking his head about how that his merger with time Warner went wrong. So, so I think, I think that, um, that, that major evolutionary events only come from, um, large Im imports of foreign material, which by definition are not likely to work out well most of, of the time. Well, um, whether you're right or not, or partly right, uh, you're, that argument is plausible. And there's a lot in my book that will help you make that argument. And I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure that I can sign on to the word only, but sure. This, this stuff is a source of innovation, has huge implications, and that's why I wrote the book, and that's why I hope people will read it, has huge implications for understanding what may have been and may continue to be some of the really important events in evolutionary history, such as the ability of animals to have internal pregnancy. Mm. Mm. That's a pretty important innovation. Right. Maybe there's well, could you just explain, just connect the dots a little bit about what you just said, because that, that was a really important point. Okay. And this then I want to circle back to Carl Woves. Okay, this is back to those captured viruses and Thierry Heidman's work and um, the viruses that get into um, our genome and make possible this membrane between the placenta and the fetus. So infection by those viruses and acquisition of those genes that were modified and repurposed in humans, instead of making a viral envelope, they make this membrane um, made possible the, de the, the development of internal pregnancy a with a placenta and a fetus held inside the body so that the female didn't have to lay eggs, set them down on the ground with a calcium shell around them, and then, and then, and then protect them. Instead, um, she had the option of running away and taking her fetus with her. She didn't have to leave it on the ground and then try and protect it. That was an important, I mean, we still have birds, so as two <laughs> birds still exist, so it's not it's not a terrible way to do it. But there are other ways that have, in some ways, better opportunities. Maybe mammals became dominant on this planet. Maybe we became the dominant mammal, partly because of that viral infection that allowed placental pregnancy. Um, well. There was another little um, detail that I thought was interesting that that the 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 coding sequences that came from those viruses ha were related to the virus's ability to suppress the immune system of the creature that it was invading. Right. And then the placenta um, performs an immune suppression function. Right. And so it does the same thing in a different context. And then it's been used four different times independently, right. Right. which I just, I just well, think it's fascinating. And Terry Heidemann made the, made the point to me. He said, this is our hypothesis that perhaps mm -hmm. the first utility of this viral gene in animal lineages that became mammal lineages 
possibly the first utility was this immune suppression because if you're if you're if you've got a fetus you're holding internally and not an egg you're laying on the ground and that fetus has the father's genes in it as well as the mother's the mother's immune system is going to want to get rid of it because those father's genes are are mm. alien alien material so you have to protect it and that's one of the functions that this membrane does Thierry Heidemann said to me, we can't prove it, but we hypothesize that perhaps immune suppression was the original purpose. Got it. Very interesting. Well, let's land the plane here. Why don't you um, kind of circle back to Carl Woese and talk about, you, you talked about what he discovered, but we haven't really talked about how it impacted the profession, um, how he's come to be viewed, and, and why he should be much more central, right. in your opinion, Okay. than he has been. So I mentioned his primitive method of sequencing genomes before we had fancy machines. He did one very important thing, and it was probably more important than discovering this whole new branch of life, this kingdom of life called the Archaea. Um, he chose a particular molecule as the Rosetta Stone for the history of life. And it's a molecule, it's, a, it's an RNA, not a DNA molecule. And it's an RNA molecule, some single-stranded rather than double-stranded. And it performs a structural function in the, the organ that all cells contain that changes DNA into proteins and changes information, genetic information, into physical bodies. They call it the translation apparatus. So this, all, all creature, living creatures need a translation apparatus. And this particular RNA molecule is there in all of them. So he said, I'm going to look at that. That's going to allow me to compare all forms of life hmm. one another and draw a tree of life a new tree of life so in 1990 he proposed a new tree of life but then other people picked up on his method and started comparing other creatures to one another and genome sequencing became faster and cheaper and easier so it wasn't just fragments anymore it was whole genomes it wasn't just this rosetta stone molecule it was the entire genome of creatures and they started finding horizontal gene transfer. And they confirmed Lynn Margulis's theory of endosymbiosis. We didn't talk mm. much about that, but, but the fact that we have bacteria inside our cells that have been turned into internal organisms, internal organs. Um, they confirmed all this with genome sequencing, and they said, no, your, your tree of life woes, which is just you know different branches coming out, that's not correct because we got a lot of branches that are converging. You were the first one who used the word converging. Converging is a really important term here. Branches converging, limbs growing sideways into one another, carrying information from one major, branches carrying information from one major limb into another. That's why my book is titled The Tangled Tree. And that's how Carl Woese's early work influenced a lot of other scientists who redrew the tree of life into this tangled shape that we now know um, is the history of life on earth. Uh, Carl Woese, he was bitter at the end of his life. He came to hate Darwin. He came to think that he was a, a more, uh, a greater scientist than Darwin, which was not, I believe, not true, but he was a very great scientist. He never won a Nobel Prize. Um, McClintock won a Nobel Prize for biology. There's no biology category. There's only physiology and medicine. She won in physiology and medicine for doing biology. Watson and Crick won in physiology and medicine for doing biology. Woes hoped that he would win one. Never did. Um, and therefore, and, and, and then he died in 2012. Uh, he was well recognized. He, would, he had a MacArthur um, Genius Fellowship. He was a member of the National Academy of Sciences. He got, an, he got a lot of awards in his life, but he never regained that 15 minutes of Andy Warhol fame that he had on the front page of the New York Times, November 3rd, 1977. So when he died, um, scientists all over the world said, oh, my God, the great Carl Woese has died. And everybody else said, who? Right. So I'm, trying to, I'm trying to answer that question, the who, with this book. I'm trying to put him well, back on the map. I, I, I think it's absolutely proper. Like, if, if, some, if somebody said, just in my personal opinion, is the tangled tree like, you know, the def definitive, like, oh, you know, work about evolution? Well, no. What it is, is it's bringing, 
it's bringing a very important figure to light. I, I would say, I, I would look at it like this, um, personally. Um, I think Darwin, Darwin was remarkably correct given how incredibly crude his methods were. I also think that the modern synthesis which followed him was a step backward, not a step forward. It, there was a lot of wrong assumptions. Like, for example, Darwin embraced Lamarck's theories, which turned out to be right only in the last 20 years, really. You know, yeah. um, well, it, the, the inheritance of acquired characteristics. That, right. that particular aspect of Lamarck, yeah. yeah right. Yeah, it, it, people keep trying to kill that, and it's, it's something that is very hard to kill, that idea. And, and well, then, right, horizontal gene transfer, you could say that that's the inheritance of acquired characteristic. Yeah. So yeah. you're right. And Darwin, and Darwin did it, embrace it. He called it use and disuse. It's mm. right there in the origin of species. And so now I think, I think if, in, in the landscape of the contributions that, that people have made, in my personal opinion, I think D Darwin is overrated. I think if you want a co comprehensive understanding of what's really going on, okay, well, yeah, we already know about the Darwin stuff. Most people, they don't understand what Carl Woese did. They don't understand what Margulis did. They, they don't understand what McClintock did. And those, like, if you take those three people and you put them together, you get a radically, it's like, we, we got a supercharger. We've got uh, a 10-gear transmission. We've got a cruise control. We've got autopilot. Like, we, we, we've taken a very crude vehicle and made it much, much more sophisticated and interesting. And, and, and look, um, if, if you don't understand retroviruses, horizontal gene uh, transfer, and transposons, um, it's going to impair medical research, disease treatment, um, all this genetic engineering. Um, I mean, these are, and given how we can now edit genes as easy as Microsoft Word with CRISPR, like we have to, we have to appreciate these things and we have to appreciate the complexity of what we're messing with because this did not come together by, a, you know, a random accumulation of point mutations. I mean, it's just, <laughs> right. So yeah. there's, there's a certain amount of reverence that we need to bring to the table. Yes, I, I agree. And I think it's, I think people should be glad that, Evolutionary biology is not a finished science. It's an unfolding science. Folks, things are happening yesterday and tomorrow that are really exciting and important. New ideas, new insights. This is, this is, this is a bubbling science. Well, so, around by this book, it's probably, <laughs> it's probably at Barnes & Noble or, or Amazon or wherever you like to buy books from, The Tangled Tree, Radical New History of Life by David Quammen. Um, people quibble about the word radical. I say it is Com compared to what is in most. If you go to Barnes and Noble and you go to the evolution shelf, most of the books there are out of date. Jerry Coyne, out of date. Richard Dawkins, out of date. Charles Darwin, you know, God bless him, but out of date. This is this is up to speed. And, um, and it's heard, a, it, heard it here from Perry. You trust Perry. You heard it from Perry. <laughs> well, look, it's Thank true. You, I mean, look, I, I, think, I think that, that what Carl Woese, Lynn Margulis, Barbara McClintock, and, and similar doodle-little, similar type people, the, 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 the dynamic evolutionary discoveries that they made are the, un, the biggest untold story in the history of science. And, and, and you, you took a, a, a very private, um, sort of crotchety guy who's really brilliant. And you always find that these geniuses are always, they're eccentric and interesting and they're into weird things like jazz or whatever, you know, and you, you dig out these stories like, wow, this is, this is really interesting. And I, I appreciate what you've done here. I think people need to understand this. And and we, we got to get evolutionary biology out of the 19th and 20th centuries. It's, it's 2018, baby. You know, like <laughs> the world is, the world is changing. And, and yeah, yeah. so, yeah, good, good job. Great. great. I, I also want to compliment you on the storytelling, having written an evolution book myself 
it is really hard to take cold, hard scientific facts and wrap bacon around them. But you did it. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. You, you. There's a lot of bacon in, in the in the in the kale salad. Okay. I love so hearing I, that. Thank you, Perry. I, I well, I you, you need to you need to get some appreciation for that. So thank you. Good job. Great talking with you. I really enjoyed it. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at cosmicfingerprints.com. 